The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to the November 16th edition of the Out of the Question podcast. My name is Andrea Schwartz, and today's question that we will attempt to look behind is asked in light of the fact that we are coming up on the 2018 observance of Thanksgiving. So the question today is, should we still remain thankful for our U.S. Constitution? My guest to help unpack this question is Hal Shirtliff of Camp Constitution. Thanks, Hal, for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. So because I always like to put people and their ideas into context, give me a little bit of background on yourself and Camp Constitution, and then we can segue into our discussion. Yes. Well, I'm uh, born and raised and currently live in the city of Boston with my wife and children. My youngest is 14. I have my oldest is married, uh, and I got a, a one off at school, and one is working full time. And we, we, we've uh, we're a homeschool family, and I'm a U.S. Army veteran. I took an oath to defend the Constitution when I was 17 years of age back in 1976, and I did understand what I was doing because, believe it or not, I had a great public school teacher back in the 70s that uh, gave me a real love of the Constitution and the respect of the Constitution. Uh, I'm a member of the Sons of the American Revolution. I'm the co-founder and full-time director of Camp Constitution, which is a charitable trust based in New Hampshire, but we have, of course, influence around the country. And actually, thanks to YouTube and our Sam Blumenfeld archive and our radio show around the world. And I'm very pleased to, um, you know, to be on the show here and have the opportunity to speak about this. Well, the reason I posed the question the way I did, Hal, is this. As you're well aware, and so our listeners are probably as well, there's a lot of bashing of history that goes on and the founding fathers, and the early years of the republic. And it's so easy for people today to assume that wisdom started with them. And they can critique people who lived hundreds of years ago based on information, for example, that those people didn't have. And so what do you think of the current trend in politics to demean things like the Constitution as the product of bias and racism and sexism and things like that? Well, I think it's part of the overall attempt to destroy our culture. The notion that our founders were all Eurocentric white racists that enslaved people and kept women, at, you know, put women down, et cetera, et cetera. They say the same thing about uh, Christians uh, in general. I think it's just a bunch of nonsense. Oh, the, if they don't say that, They'll say, well, the Constitution was written in an agrarian society with a population of two and a half to three million people, and that it has no validity for today's you know, modern society. And I counter with that by saying that our Constitution is more valid today than it ever was because it really deals with man's nature. And according to King Solomon, not, there's nothing new under the sun. We may have computers, we may have jet planes, and we have technology that the founders could only dream of, but our na human nature doesn't change, and all we have to do is just look at history, especially the history of the 20th century, and that this century is not so great either, a history of bloodshed and chaos, and so suggest that our founders, uh, what they gave us was somehow uh, invalid is, is ridiculous. The framers of the Constitution Many of them were devout Christians. Some of them were not, but they had a, they lived in a Christian culture, and they were aware of the uh, innate depravity of man. Even guys like Thomas Jefferson, who was not at the convention, but he once remarked that, do not speak to me of the confidence of men, but bind them down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. That sounds very Calvinistic to me. Right. So, obviously, 
if people write history books, they're going to write history books based on their presuppositions. So it sounds like you're saying the presuppositions of most, if not all of the framers of the Constitution had to do with a biblical world and life view. Yes. So what happened? How come we don't have that anymore? Well, as, as most of your listeners are aware, what when Benjamin Franklin left the, uh, the convention, a woman asked him, uh, what have you given us? And he said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And the problem is we haven't been able to keep it. And another quote by John Adams, who was in France, I believe, at the time of the convention, although strongly supported the Constitution, he said this Constitution, he wrote this letter while he was president to militia officers of Massachusetts. And he said, this Constitution is for a religious and moral people. It is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. And in those days, religion, the word religion or religious was synonymous with the term Christianity. Today, you know, we hear the word religion and some people, oh, you know, we don't have a religion, we have a relationship. But back when it was used 200 years ago, 250 years ago, it was synonymous with Christianity. So that's the problem is that if, if and I believe John Adams was correct, today's modern man, modern women, they have no useful limited government. They want total government. They want government to provide for them, to give us a safety net. And over the last hundred years, we have done that. You know, we have a very, uh, an enormous uh, federal government that's totally unconstitutional. And, you know, for example, the Department of Education. Well, there's nothing in the Constitution that uh, grants power to Congress to or the president to create such a branch or an executive office. And they, they did that. It used to be the Department of Education was just an office that gathered statistics around the country. And uh, Jimmy Carter brought it up to a cabinet-level position, and every president, Republican or Democrat, has gone along with it. It's unconstitutional. In fact, I have a book published in 1941 by the U.S. government. It was called The Formation of the Union Under the Constitution. It was a book that was commemorating the 150th anniversary of the Constitution. They were a few years late getting it published. It was published by a New Deal government, Roosevelt, and the New Deal uh, Congress. The man who signed off was a man named Saul Bloom, who was a congressman from New York, I believe. And they had a little catechism, little questions and answers in halfway through the book. And it said, uh, what role does the federal government have in education? And you know what the answer was? What? 1941 New Deal Democrats. None. Well, what's happened since then? There's not been any amendments added that authorize this. We just let it happen. You know, state legislators and state officials and citizens. Hey, the federal government wants to give us money. Uh, we don't have to raise it ourselves. We're all, we'll, let's do it. Let's go for it. And that's the problem is that, and I find out that, discover that many Christians do not understand the Constitution very well. I go so far as to say there are people who have never read the Constitution and it's not that long a document. They have not read it, or they may have seen excerpts from it. I had a very uh, interesting experience uh, this past June. I was in Lynchburg, Virginia. I was going to a minor league baseball game, and there was a lady running for office passing out pamphlets, running for Congress, U.S. House Representatives. So I asked her, uh, where do you find the job description for a member of the House Representatives? And she looked at me like I had, uh, you know, two heads. So I rephrased the question. I said, where do you find the duties and the requirements, et cetera, for a member of the House of Representatives? And she looked at me and she said, online? Oh, how funny. I said, well, yes, but, you know, can you look at She had no idea. And I gave her a copy of the Constitution, which I usually take have with me or have nearby in my car. And I said, you know, if you read this and understand it, you're going to be leagues ahead of the uh, incumbent, I, I'm imagining. I don't know who the incumbent was at the time, or any of your opponents. I said, uh, of course, she was, I read her pamphlet. She was a, uh, a, a far-left social justice warrior, and that's the last thing they want to know and care about is the Constitution. So how do you respond when people say the Constitution is a living document? It should change with the times. After all, and you brought up the agrarian culture, etc., don't we want to update our software? Don't we want to update our cars? I mean, why don't we want to update the Constitution? 
Well, I, I do hear that a lot. I remember I was on a radio show many years ago, and a, a person called up and was saying that we should abolish it. It's you know, you know, written, as I said earlier. And I said, well, what do you want to get rid of first? Now, this person really didn't much. No, I could I could see that this person didn't read the Constitution. I said, "You want to get rid of the First Amendment for you know the one that protects the the, the free speech and the freedom of religion and the freedom to redress grievance of the government, etc." He said, "Well, no, we don't want to do that." I said, "What about the the Eighth Amendment?" Well, he didn't know what that was. I said, "Cruel and unusual punishment." I said, "You know, in Europe they used to draw and quarter people, and it's a pretty brutal form of execution. Do you think we should?" Oh, no, I don't want to do that one either. What about this amendment? What about that amendment? And I said, you see, you're a victim of a cliche. You never really thought things through. It just sounded good, but you didn't really look into it. Now, there is a process to amend the Constitution because the, the, the framers realized they weren't perfect men. And they said that we may have, uh, well, you know, if there's an error or something we forgot to put in there, uh, let's be able to amend it. And I'm glad that they made it so difficult. Just like I, I, I love the Electoral College. They said that, you know, in order to have an amendment, you have to have either two-thirds of both the U.S. House and Senate. Then it has to go to the states for ratification, three-fourths of the states, either by um, state ratifying conventions or by the legislators. Or, and then, or, or through an Article 5 convention, which I hope we don't have anytime soon. And we've only added, after the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, we've only added, what, uh, another uh, 17. And two of those amendments, one cancel out the other, see. So that's how you, if there's something terribly, you know, deficient, that's how you correct it. And there was a few things. There was really no way to appoint a, a vice president. And there was a few presidents who had vice presidents that died, and there was no way to appoint them. Uh, so they changed that. They made uh, they made an amendment to deal with that. I think it was after Kennedy was uh, assassinated. Oh, be, uh, I think it was right before that, that would, the 24th Amendment, I believe, uh, or 25th. So, that, so they rectified that problem. And as I said earlier, that the Constitution deals with human nature more so than anything else. That's why you have these checks and balances. And as far as technology, the founders realized that they would have been technological advancements, I'm sure. They didn't know. I mean, they were, it was one of the, uh, one of the signers of the Const uh, Declaration. Uh, Charles Carroll, he was involved with the railroad in Baltimore. You know, I think he lived to be, I think uh, he was the oldest living signer at 18, he died in 1836, I believe. But here he was, the railroad was being, uh, was being built while he was still alive. So, but that's why they set up a patent office. So they, they, so they protect people's copyrights and patents. So they were, they understood technology. But as I said before, technology and population, in fact, the more people we have in this country, the more need for a decentralized government and the more vi viable the Constitution becomes. A couple of things. You made a passing reference to the fact that you hope that a certain convention never starts, never happens today. What did you mean by that? Oh, yeah. Well, as I'm, uh, Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution uh, gives two ways to amend the Constitution. And the second way that we've never had was the uh, a convention uh, that the, a, state, a, a group of states delegates from states would meet in a convention and propose amendments to the Constitution. There's been a long time effort to get us into one. There's been a more recent drive the last several years, two groups. One of them is a left-wing group called Wolfpack, founded by Cenk Uger of the Young Turks. The other one is founded by Mr. Mark Meckler, formerly of the Tea Party Patriots, called Convention of States. And these two groups kind of work together and they've introduced resolutions. See, all the states can do is apply for one. And they've got about 12 resolutions, the Convention of States. And they, they are on record as uh, wanting to restructure the Constitution. And uh, we don't need to restructure it. As, as many have said, we don't have a paper problem. We have a people problem. I see. So your reluctance to see one of these conventions begin is the fact that we have a populace that doesn't even really understand the current Constitution That's correct. in terms of how to change it. That's correct. Yes. All right. You also mentioned the Electoral College. And aside from it not being a place where you go after high school, which I heard recently somebody asked someone a question and that's what somebody thought. Why is the Electoral College so important to a constitutional republic? Well, because the president was never supposed to be 
the most powerful person in the free world. That's not his job, or her, if a woman uh, is elected. The states themselves choose the, the electors. When we vote in the election, we're actually choosing electors. And if we let it up, left it up to a general election, the states with large populations would control the country. California, New York, and such, they would have complete control of the country. All of the other states would have very little impact. And uh, I think that is the major reason why the Electoral College was a, was a wonderful thing. Each state comes in. Each state has two senators, whether the population of that state is 600,000 or you know, 50 million, but they have the members of the House are based on the population. And right now, I think it's at something like 700,000. A congressman or woman represents about 700,000 people, might be a little more than that. And we have 435 seats in the House. And it's been that way for a number of years, sort of static. That Although Congress could change it, the states with large populations have lots of representation in the House of Representatives, and that is the most powerful branch. The founders made that the most powerful branch for a very good reason. That's the people's branch. That's the branch that that um, initiates the all bills that raise it revenue. That branch can be voted out of office every two years. Frequent elections was another very important aspect of the Constitution. So how does the whole discussion of immigration factor into the framers view when they were talking about new people coming to the country well yeah they uh well of course article one section eight gives congress the power to uh naturalization which is the process of becoming a citizen and then on the uh, the necessary and proper clause which is the last clause of article one section eight says they make laws that they have to make the laws to enact the things the powers they have in, in um that they're granted by, to them by the Constitution, and they the first the first one that was passed in the I think it was the first very first Congress they passed an immigration law. They don't use the term immigration, I don't think, in those days, but they basically put people of good character who are European. I don't know if they use the word white. Eventually, blacks were become citizens, but in those days, it was people of good character, and there wasn't a lot of immigration in the first uh, three or four decades. The immigration came later. Uh, I mean, the massive immigration came by the 1840s and 50s and 60s and then the turn of the last centuries when we had massive immigration. But that's when it was necessary. You know, hey, we need to have laws. We need to have who's coming in this country. We don't want these people to be a, a burden on the on the society. So they have to have people that will sponsor them, family members or others that will make sure that they're not going to be on the local dole or the local charity rolls that these people do not have communicable diseases, that they, once they become U.S. citizens, they have to swear allegiance, and for uh, any past allegiances, they have to uh, disconnect. I uh, came. I was doing some research in the city of Boston, and I found, I wasn't looking for this, but 1921, the city of Boston published a book for Im- immigrants, and it was totally consistent with the federal law. Today, city of Boston is a, um, a sanctuary city, a total violation of the Constitution. And it lists these are the kinds of people who will become citizens. You have to learn English before you become a citizen. You have to be either white or black. I thought that was pretty interesting. And be of good character, you know, become a U.S. citizen. So um, it, uh, it was really re- restricted. It restricted people. And, it, I, you know, you can say well, it was based on racism. But it was also, I think, more, I don't think it was so much racism as the ability for people to assimilate. And I think there are some people from some cultures that cannot assimilate or are very difficult. And, uh, I mean, I think a, a, a practicing Muslim, if that person is really strictly adhering to the Koran, cannot take an oath of allegiance to the Constitution. Do you think in a biblical sense that it's wrong for Christians to take an oath to the Constitution because they are only supposed to have allegiance to God? Well, I think the term affirmation, but I uh, I took an oath to defend the Constitution 
and in in no way does it detract from my Christian values. Now, if there were some things added to the Constitution that I found that were strictly were, were totally anti-Christian, then I'd have to you know reconsider. And so far, so good. I haven't had any amendments that uh, you know say that I have to fund abortion or that I you know I have to renounce my faith in God or anything like that. So. Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution. And that goes with everything else that we do. You know, all the other endeavors we have, is this endeavor godly? Is this is this job I do? I mean, it, I couldn't take a job working in a store that sold, sold pornography. That would be ungodly. And I, I, would, I would have a strong conflict. I couldn't take a job working in an abortion clinic or, or, or things of this nature. But I can, take, I, can, I can say, yes, I will uphold that Constitution. I don't have, any, in my own view, I don't have any problems with it. And I think, I think most, many Christians share that same view. I know John Eidsmo, who um, got a chance to interview not too long ago at a uh, Mid-Atlantic Reformation Society conference, he wrote a great book called Christianity and the Constitution. And he you know, no uncertain, no uncertainty with him. He said the Constitution is totally consistent with a biblical worldview. So there's the document and what it states, and then of course it's the way in which people redefine terms. Uh, a, a great example is welfare. The That's Constitution right. mentions welfare. Why don't you go into a little bit about what the founders meant? And now how that definition has been perverted. Well, it generally meant a, a general well-being. And the best way to do that is for the government to leave you alone. But at some point, it became the government, the term welfare was meant some type of dole, some type of money that people got from the federal government. And they say, oh, the welfare clause, you know, provide for the, provide, promote the wealth, general welfare, and then provide. There's two different places where one case is provide, one is promote. But the general welfare would be just a, a sense of uh, goodwill, a sense of liberty and freedom. It had nothing to do with um, getting a check every month and getting food stamps. But but terms have changed. It's amazing. I mean, we are a constitutional republic. And you look at the uh, U.S. Constitution. I mean, I look at the Constitution as basically um, an owner's manual, you know, for a free people. And if I had an owner's manual for a car, it tells me what kind of oil to put in, what kind of what size tire, et cetera. And if I put tires that didn't fit, they were bigger or too small, and that can fit on those rims. I'd say, well, you got to look at the owner's manual, find out what kind of motor oil do I put in, what kind of transmission fluid do I put in. Well, the word republics in the Constitution, it says that every state is guaranteed a republican form of government. Nowhere is the word democracy, but if you ask the average person on the street what type of government we have, they will say democracy because that's what they've been taught. Most likely that's what they've heard when it's just the opposite. In a republic, it means ruled by law, res publica, the public thing, ruled by law. In a true republic, the uh, whims of the majority are, uh, uh, cannot take the rights of the minority. And when, again, when you use the word minority, most people think, well, black or Hispanic or some type of group of people that do not make up the majority of the population. But it also has to do, uh, it, when a minority here would be people that don't share the majority view. I mean, let's look at, let's say, the uh, Reconstruction Christians, right? The Orthodox Presbyterians. That is not the majority view in our country. But under the Constitution, we have the right, and state constitutions too. I want to point out that every state has a constitution, and the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, which were part of the, you know, what they call the Bill of Rights, basically say in so many words that powers granted to the federal government cannot be used to deny disparage others retained by the people or the states. So I think it's important that you look at your state constitution. For, for example, Massachusetts, which is the oldest operating constitution in the world, 1780, it's much more clear the Christian character of the people who wrote that constitution. You know, it said you had an obligation to worship the great creator of the universe when it comes to choosing candidates or elect, I'm not quoting it verbatim, but it says morality and piety are indispensable virtues, etc. So it's important that people learn about their state constitutions too. So when you're talking about learning, you're talking about education and yes. you're a homeschool family. I was a homeschool family. I'm a huge proponent of Christian education as being the only faithful way to parent, whether you send your children to a Christian school or homeschool them yourself. A lot of the confusion 
and the prevailing think about what welfare means, what minorities mean, etc., is a product, I think, twofold, and I'd like to have your comments on this. One, a statist educational system that is interested in promoting itself as God as opposed to the God of Scripture as God, and then the church that decided that all it was going to do is talk about saving souls as mm-hmm. opposed to affecting the culture. Well, uh, I know you and I are both have been, we're both friends of the late Sam Blumenfeld, and I've we we have the Sam Blumenfeld archives on our website. I first met Sam, I think, in '88, and I spent a lot of time with him, driving him around. I've learned so much, and so I have to give him a lot of the credit for my understanding of. But you're right. If I was to, if I was a Catholic, I would have a set up a school, parochial schools that will reflect the values of the Catholic Church. If I'm a Baptist, I'm going to set up a school that reflects the theological values of the Baptist, the Baptist, uh, Pentecostals, um, uh, Orthodox Presbyterians. If I'm a statist, I am going to reflect the values of the state, of humanism. So it, it makes all the sense in the world. I wouldn't expect a statist to start a Christian school. I would be really concerned what kind of school you're going to be starting. And a lot of parents don't get that. See, but because for years, you know, the schools were either pro-Christian or they were, well, you really can't be neutral, but they weren't hostile. You'd open in prayer, you'd do a little Bible reading, and they, the, 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 the teachers and the educators weren't trying to destroy your faith. You know, in local parentis meant something, you know, in place of the parents. So, uh, but that's changed. That's been changing since the 1930s. And where they teach evolution, they promote the homosexual movement. They promote socialism, uh, globalism. They also are big supporters of this uh, thing called climate change and, and many other things that are just the opposite of Christianity. And it really bothers me to find so many Christians, they wonder why their children have lost their faith. Because you put him in, as Sam Blumenfeld, he called the public schools uh, Unitarian parochial schools. <laughs> and, yeah, I remember. And, you know, it's interesting, too. I had a, a gentleman that was in a church that my families and I used to belong. And he was a big supporter of Christians in public school because we need to be witnesses to the world and such. And I'm talking about students, not maybe teachers, but students. And I said, what would happen if on the way to church, I dropped my children off at the Unitarian Church Sunday School. Would you question my, my faith? He said, well, of course I would. And why would you do that? He said, but because the Unitarians, they denied uh, the divinity of Jesus Christ, uh, and they, you know, they promote values that are different, much different than ours. And I said, why would you drop them off at the Unitarian Sunday School five days a week for six hours a day? Right. And I think it resonated with him. That's true. And I think that uh, the public schools in general – keep adding things to it, I, I sometimes think it's a gift from God and, and if it's going to be received that way. So now they institute that girls can be boys, boys can be girls, mm-hmm. and we'll have a slew of other genders, and people still who profess belief in Jesus Christ will send them there. Well, you wonder how hot the pot has to get before they decide we're not going to do this anymore. Uh, in California, where I live, not a legislative session goes by where they're not trying to correct things that are wrong about state schools academically or whatever. They're always trying to regulate homeschools. Mm-hmm. And so you get to see that these are competing religious views. And the, if, if, you, if the modern state considers itself a majority, it's not going to be too concerned with the perspectives of the minority. And we're going to try to, they're going to try to overturn it, overrun it and legislate it. And I think that with a knowledge of the constitution, which of course would be based on a knowledge of scripture, we need to recapture the idea of what it means to be a free people. It means to be a responsible people who have to do hard work. And sometimes if our work doesn't pan out and we lose a lot, okay, we rebuild. We don't say, well, then everybody else should pay for my failure. Or they might say, uh, God's going to come home. God's going to rapture us out anytime, so why not to worry about it? And that's, that's another problem. Uh, abandonment theology, I think, uh, was a book I think I just, I just had in my hand a day or so ago that, uh, that many churches are promoting. 
And that's, right. that's too bad. They're telling us that we should not be part of the culture. We should get away from it. We shouldn't be trying to capture it or, or uh, influence it. But Jesus, uh, God never said, oh, no, you just stay in the little confines of your church. No, he said, what did he say? He said, take dominion over all things. And that, that means that if you're the CEO of a corporation, you, your values, the corporation's culture should reflect the values, of, uh, uh, godly values. And they used to do that. I think of the John Hancock Life Insurance. They used to publish these nice little booklets on history, Christmas carols. Uh, I remember calling them up uh, a few years ago asking about a particular one. Can I reprint it? Oh, we don't do anything like that. You know, we don't care what you do with that stuff. We have nothing to do with that anymore. You know, it's almost like they were embarrassed about it. Right. Well, because the opponents of Christianity play dirty. They will come after people and then other people will say, well, I don't want that to happen to me. Mm -hmm. A really good example, which our listeners may or may not be aware of, there is a young lady who goes to the University of California at Berkeley who was a homeschooled young lady in my community. I didn't know her or her family personally, but lots of the people I know know her. Anyway, she was accepted into Berkeley and she sits on the academic senate which means that she was voted in by fellow students. Well, because Berkeley doesn't like President Trump's administration saying that Title IX funds should only be used for females who are actually female, as opposed to all these other groups, <laughs> Berkeley decided to have a resolution to condemn it and say they don't stand for that. Yeah, well, I just heard about that. Yeah. yeah. So just to finish the story, she didn't do anything other than say, I am going to abstain from this vote. She didn't vote against it. She said, I'm going to abstain from this vote because it's contrary to my religious world and life view. And then all hell broke loose. Mm -hmm. You know, people are calling for her resignation. She shouldn't be there. She's a bigot. She's a hater. Mm -hmm. um, she gets all sorts of um, threats and foul things sent to her on Facebook and other places. And somehow or other, the quote-unquote majority on the campus thinks she's the hater. Now, how could they come to that conclusion except they've been incited and fed this, as you put it, at the Unitarian Sunday School five okay. days a week for 12 years in high school, uh, if they went to kindergarten, and then higher education? You know, it's interesting. There was a young lady that used to attend our summer camp. I met her on the Boston Common from a um, a broken family. And I think the only time she was around, I would say, d decent company was a one week while she was at camp. And we thought, we're making an impact on her. She, she's got a ray of light. Uh, now, this was about eight. I haven't been in touch with about five or six years. She finally contacts me on Facebook, and she's just running me down. Everything you said was a lie. You're a liar, this and that. You're not a patriotic. And I'm thinking, wow, she's probably getting extra credit from her social justice warrior professor to, to to bash i says well you know we don't win them unfortunately we don't win them all but no doubt and she says well i trust the research i think i had posted something about um, uh, cortez in columbus columbus day oh well my research at my college says this and i said well obviously you know you're not getting all the information and i'm providing information from pretty sound sources you know you know from the organic documents the columbus's uh, notes and his own writings and such so and history, not uh, not the left-wing version, and she wouldn't want to accept it, so I just sort of right. yeah. And it's funny. People think, well, how good could the training be in a homeschool and organizations like you have if they can be so easily turned? Well, you can go through your entire life and not walk into Poison Oak, and you'll never get it. But as That's soon right. as you walk into Poison <laughs> Oak, even if you just did it once, you'll get Poison Oak. So it doesn't negate the fact that maybe – for all that time prior, somebody was telling you, don't walk in there. So it, it's right. not a sense that, well, gee, this stuff doesn't work. It's that, as you quoted earlier, people need to use their liberty wisely and under God. Otherwise, they will lose it. And what they consider freedom will really be much more descriptive of totalitarianism and tyranny. Well, Dr. Duke Pesta, who's an expert on Common Core, he's a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin in Oshkosh, he said that 80% of Christians that come into state colleges lose their faith. 
And he said that nothing excites his colleagues, his leftist colleagues, more than when a Christian loses their faith. They, they, they've done their job. And this was a case. And of course, we had this young lady for one week out of the year. It's not like she was going back and her friends shared the same views as the ones she made at our camp and that she got this reinforced from her family in in the public schools. No, she was getting just the opposite. So it is very challenging, you know, to deal with these kinds of things. And that's why I say, uh, as Sam Blumenfeld said, get your children out of those public schools and do not put them in the state universities at all. So, Hal, tell us a little bit about Camp Constitution, what it is, how it operates. Are people still invited to come and participate? Yes, well, it's a, it's a charitable trust, as I think I started when I, when you first, when I opened up the program here. We're founded and uh, conceived in 2008, and uh, we started with uh, nothing more than a, a week-long family camp that had uh, lots of classes on the Constitution and other uh, issues that, relate threats uh, to our, our republic, our country, and then uh, the need to be actively involved in liberty in the liberty movement. Uh, our motto is uh, honoring the past, teaching the present, pre- uh, preparing the future. Uh, and we have unaccompanied minors as well as whole families. Uh, and that includes infants and toddlers or what have you. And then uh, as time went on, we uh, some of the things we'll be using in our class uh, were out of print. So one of our supporters said, let's do our own publishing. So we started a little publishing arm, nothing substantial, but we published uh, uh, some books. We put some be- things back into print. Then somebody offered me uh, time on a radio show up in northern Maine, and we'd be doing that. We started a YouTube channel. And uh, by God's grace, two years ago, two years in February, I became a full-time because I, I travel around the region, uh, information tables at homeschool shows, and also do, we have a speakers bureau, we testify at legislators, uh, so those, so we do we do quite a lot. And just uh, a few weeks ago, I became the president of the Sam Blumenfeld Literacy Foundation, which sort of dovetails quite a bit with Camp Constitution. So how can people access this information and if they decide hey this would be something great for our family to do go to one of these constitution camps how would they find out about it they can go to our website campconstitution.net next year's camp will be at the christian um the lakeside christian camp and retreat center from july 28th to august 3rd and uh, we do our best to accommodate people whether you pick them up at airports or even make some potential carpool arrangements we have people driving as far as uh of uh, Michigan. We had one guy drive from uh, California all the way to our camp. So uh, we do our best. We also do have tuition uh, help available. We've never turned away a worthy camper or family. And we have activities. If you go to our website, there's a little drop down there. Uh, we have a, a calendar. So we're, we, we're doing things on a regular basis. Uh, we're going to have a uh, going to have a Christmas breakfast meeting at the camp uh, in Pittsfield, December 1st at 10 o'clock. One of our speakers is Reverend Stevie Kraft. And I know of some people who might live in the general uh, western Massachusetts, uh, uh, the upper part of uh, you know, the Great Albany area would be interested in uh, attending. We'd love to have you. Okay, excellent. Now, two points that I wanted to kind of go over in, that came to mind in the course of the conversation. The first one having to do with women. And people saying, um, especially some of your more feminist-type women, saying the women had no voice in the life of the country until they got the vote. And, of course, that makes everything political, that we can't look at life apart from politics. Could you speak a little bit about whether or not women were unrepresented in the republic and under the Constitution? Well, I think uh, most of these men who were the framers had wives, and they corresponded with their wives. And I think if Abigail Adams, who was probably one of the most influential women in our nation's history, uh, John respected and admired her for her wisdom, and lots of things that she supported or advocated were uh, were, in, were were influenced by it influenced John. You can say the same thing about many other women. And one of our instructors at camp is Chris Ann Hall, and she has a special, uh, she does a class on, you know, the ladies of the revolution. Uh, We were on a field trip and we were visiting, um, I took her to the uh, cemetery uh, graveyard 
where three of the signers of John Hancock and uh, Paul Revere and um, Robert Treat Payne and James Otis and the lady who was dressed in colonial outfits, uh, well, the women, this and the women, that. She says, oh, no, she set her straight. Women had a lot of influence. And if the Bible says uh, the two become one, you know, a husband and wife become one, the goal, when it came to voting, it wasn't that, oh, we think women are foolish and silly. In the days. It was the, the vote represented the family, you know, and I think, uh, and I'm not against women voting. I, I think the socialists, when they, uh, they were pushing the women's right to vote, they thought most women would vote socialist or they'll vote for the handsomer of the two, like John Kennedy versus uh, Richard Nixon. More women voted for Richard Nixon than they voted for John Kennedy. So uh, I think it sort of uh, kind of uh, didn't quite meet their objectives. And you see some of the these ladies' groups, like Phyllis Schlafly's Eagle Forum or the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles or Concerned Women for America, there's a, uh, there's a lot of powerful uh, conservative people like you, for example. So, yeah, I think that women have always had an influence. Um, one of the, uh, I just read her, recently read her book, uh, Mercy Warren Otis. She was, uh, she wrote one of the first history books on the Revolutionary War. She knew all the principal people, you know, she was personal friends with Abigail and John Adams, you know. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's, a, that's one of these myths, too, that uh, people hear. Right. And so you rewrite history, you pull women away from their primary role to be wife, mother, helper to their husband. Um, you look at the Proverbs 31 woman, she's That's certainly right. not a know-nothing person. And I think it's also important for young ladies who are currently being educated with a Christian world and life view to know that these women did not feel oppressed or battered or underrepresented or ignored. That's just not how the culture of a true Christian family operates. Not at all. No, exactly. Today, you think the women have more respect today than they had 200 years ago, 250 years ago? And it, one of the most tragic things is uh, seeing women in combat or women in, in military, in combat roles in the military. That's unbiblical. And it's one thing when, you know, the, the heart, the, the home is being invaded. And I think women should learn self-defense. I think they should learn martial arts. They should learn how to shoot. That's all. I would say the most frightening thing would be a woman with a gun protecting her family. If I was an intruder uh, coming into a home, I think that woman is, is a real a lioness. But to put a woman in a uniform and send them overseas when there's plenty of men that could be in those roles, I think it's repugnant. See women losing their limbs or being captured as prisoners of war, I think is repugnant. And I think it's a disgrace and it reflects upon the men, in, Christian men, right. who, uh, who seem to think this is okay. The war on women was not taking place when the republic was founded. The war on women now is, I'll get you pregnant and you deal with it. So That's right. you go That's ahead right. and you get the abortion, here's the money. That's my yeah, whole ba yeah, 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 babe, I support your right to have an abortion because I don't want to be responsible. So, And then and, and she, she have to deal with the psychological and physical aspects of it. Yes. Right. And then and it goes see, into the way women dress. After all, see, now we're free to dress the way we want. Well, Maybe they don't understand how God made men and women, but women's beauty and women's things that make her different than men are going to be attractive. So why would you advertise to the world in general something that God says is so precious and important that it should be reserved for one relationship? See, that's not liberation. That's slavery. That's slavery, right? But, but then the consequences of that lifestyle of venereal diseases, emotional issues – suicide you know my prayer now i have uh, my oldest daughter's married and she's got a she got a good loving husband but i've got four children uh from 14 to 24 they have not dated yet one's in college and uh, my son is a handsome man he's 21 and my daughters are very attractive I'm, I'm a little biased but most people will tell me that they'll say they're really a beautiful girls and my son's a good-looking guy and they're christians and my prayer my wife's we prayed for their spouses when they were babies and my prayer is that the first person that they start dating according is the person they marry so they don't have to deal with all this broken you know this is the person that god wants for you and that will be the person that, that will god will bring and that's been our prayer and we, we think he'll answer he'll, be, he'll honor that prayer
Right, right. Well, God listens to the prayers of his faithful. Okay, one last question that I want to get into before we close up because we're getting to the end of our time. There is such a misunderstanding in terms of what the federal government should or shouldn't do. So I remember as a child when I was being snippy and defiant and rebellious would talk to my father in terms of the first amendment says I can do this or that. (laughs) And this idea that the first amendment has any role inside the family or inside the church, these amendments were specifically targeting the federal government, not all life in general. That's absolutely correct, right? Uh, yeah, we actually had. It was my net. One of my nephews was at camp, and he gets home and he says, "I have the right to speech," you know. And uh, the the wife, the the sister law, called me up. I said, yeah, "I think he's taking a little bit of license with what he learned at camp," you know, because the First Amendment says that Congress, you know, can't uh, can't mess with the right to speech. It doesn't say anything about dad or mom, you know. Exactly. Uh, so we we had to clarify that. And uh, but sometimes people people will read what they want. They'll take out what they want to take out. I think, and I think that's part of our sin nature that we 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 believe what we want to believe, and we sometimes choose uh, you know not to believe certain things. But again, it's uh, the Constitution was not written in ancient hieroglyphics. It was written in English, and there are some terms in there that are archaic. But let me just read Amendment One: Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or bridging the freedom of the speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's it. It says Congress. It's a really, it's just a bunch of uh, the, the bill of the first 10 amendments. It should be called the bill of what Congress can't do. So you mean that a reporter doesn't have his free speech rights infringed if he's no longer invited to come and ask the president questions? Well, uh, I think uh, you would would want the president to be accountable to a press, but there are certain standards that, uh, you know, you're in my house and you get, if you act rude and belligerent, you're not welcome to my house. If uh, I think the president should be the same way. And uh, he didn't say that the press doesn't have any access. Just this particular reporter can't come in. You know? Right, he was sent to his room, and he didn't like it. Well, I just, I think I just before I came on the show, I think he, the court, uh, a judge said that he has to give his press pass back. I don't know. An injunction was issued, so we'll see how that plays out. One thing before we go, you mentioned Sam Blumenfeld and the fact that there's this Sam Blumenfeld Literacy Foundation, and I think it goes back to how important it is to learn how to read and to give children and adults who may not have had a good education access to documents and perspectives that they'll never have gotten in their public school. And I always appreciated that along with Sam's critique of statist education and talking about its origins and its effects, that he also produced materials helping people learn how to read better if they didn't learn how to read well initially, how to teach others, and actually how to tutor so that people who say, I don't want to put my children in a public school, have the ability to learn how to teach their children. Yes, uh, Sam was probably the biggest critic of government education, but he didn't just criticize, he provided uh, resources for parents and others, educators to use. So we, and I inherited his library and most of it uh, in his papers and writings. And we, uh, thanks to um, him doing that, he, he knew that I was going to do something like this. He probably didn't know exactly what, but I told him a few days before he passed away that we at Camp Constitution will do our utmost to make sure unborn generations will be influenced by your important work. And so uh, thanks to our camp newspaper uh, editor, Mark Affleck from Pennsylvania, and uh, Eric Conver, our webmaster, they created this uh, Blumenfeld archive. My job was to sift through 200 boxes and things, and they digitized a lot of his speeches, all his newsletters, the Alpha Phonics, which was, I think, his most important work, and it was the most simplest uh, the way how you can teach people how to read with all 128 lessons, either audio or video. And that was thanks to Mr. Bill McNally, who started the same Blumenfeld Literacy Foundation. Uh, but that's available on our website. Just go to campconstitution.net, and you'll see the drop-down. 
in many of his speeches. We had a lot of uh, uh, the old cassette tapes, and uh, we even had some reel-to-reels that we we put in MP3 and MP4 formats. So you probably get about two or three weeks worth of Sam just if you just put your computer on and just put the playlist, and it would just play, and you'd get lots of information there. That's excellent. And the Chalcedon Foundation sells many of his books, including right. the Alphabotics Program and Readers and How to Tutor. And I would encourage our listeners to check that out if they go to calcedon.edu and just put in the resources search bar, Sam Blumenfeld, you'll see lots of the stuff that he has written that Calcedon carries. And I'd also like to point out that R.J. Rushduni, founder of Calcedon, has an audio series on the U.S. Constitution and an extensive American history series that... uh, make for good listening. They're available on CD and MP3, and those also can be accessed at calcedon.edu. Let me mention, too, that Sam Blumenfeld was a very close friend of uh, Reverend Rush Dooney. In fact, um, Sam considered him to be his almost a father figure. It's definitely a spiritual father figure. And when Mrs. Rush Dooney passed away, was it 2003 or four? Right. Sam didn't keep a diary, like, you know, day to day, but he would make notes. But at her passing, he said in his little diary, on his little notes, that he said, all the giants in my life have passed. And he considered Mrs. Rush Dooney and Reverend Rush Dooney and other people in his life that were people that really mentored him and were, in his eyes, giants, intellectual giants. And he considered both the, uh, Mrs. Rush Dooney and uh, Reverend Rush Dooney to be of that caliber. And both of those people, uh, Rush and his wife, Dorothy, had a tremendous influence on my life and the life of my family. For the 15 years, we had the blessing of being able to be with them. And I got to meet Sam via that relationship. And every time he would come out to California, he would stop by my neck of the woods and we'd go out and eat. And he's the one who said to me, you should start writing books. And I laughed and I said, who uh-huh. would want to listen to me? And he, just, he looked, as you know, Sam, he just looked and he just repeated himself. He wasn't even going to listen to my argument. He just said, you yeah. should start writing books. Well, Hal, this has been delightful. I appreciate talking with you and I hope lots of people check out Camp Constitution. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. All right. And listeners, as always, feel free to send comments and questions to out of the question podcast at gmail.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for topics. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit kingdomdrivenfamily.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.